Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books and Literary Studies. Welcome. I just spoke with Eric Hayo about his new book, On Literary Worlds. This was published with Oxford University Press in 2012. This was very exciting for me because although this book, as you'll hear more and more about over the course of the interview, is very careful in focusing its claims and its analyses on literary studies very specifically, and and modern literature, modern studies within that field, it presents a language and a way of thinking about some of the fundamental concepts and categories and units of humanities work more broadly that makes it really, really useful for those of us who work on other humanistic disciplines, social sciences disciplines, perhaps even disciplines beyond that. So as a historian, what Hayo is doing in this book to encourage us to rethink or to think differently, more openly, more creatively about such basic elements as scale, units of space, time and periodization, relationships between parts and wholes, what constitutes a world, um, what we might mean, what we could mean, what we um, have meant in the past when we've used terms like universal, global, globalization. All of this is really, really good to think with, even if you're not someone who self-identifies as a literary scholar or somebody who works on literary studies. The program and the language that Hayo is giving us in this book and that enable us to create a way of comparing and, and generating relationships between units, between objects, between texts and authors that otherwise we might not uh, we might not have the vocabulary to compare. We might not think of comparing, and in creating these new relationships and these new comparisons, really we have the the raw material to transform the field, to transform the way we write about and also the way we teach uh, literary studies and, and I would argue humanities more broadly. So it was a great pleasure to talk with Eric about this. It was really inspiring for me both to read the book and also to talk with him about it. And in the course of our interview, you'll hear us talking about not just the production of work, the production of content in literary studies and also tangentially in history, uh, but also how we teach and how we train others to do this kind of work. So it speaks to issues at the level of text, but also at the level of institution and training. I hope you enjoy. I certainly did. We're here today to talk with Eric Hayo about his book on literary worlds. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies, Eric, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Carl. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Eric, could you start off by saying just a little bit about your background? What brought you into, if, if you can think back, and I know you've had a, um, a very rich and a very long career already, but if you can think back to what brought you into the field of comparative literature um, in, in the first place, I would love to hear a little bit about that. Well, you know, I started out in English. I mean, I think that I, I, you know, I was, I mean, I was raised multilingually and and in Europe, and then moved to the states when I was thirteen. My mother was American, and so I'd always been multilingual, but I hadn't really known about the existence of comparative literature, um, as you know, as many uh, undergraduates don't, right? Because it's not the kind of thing that you you study in in um, high school. And so I got to college, and English seemed like the 
the place where you did the you know the literary thing and so i did i did a, a degree in english and then an ma and a phd all in english and and at some point you know i became really interested in post-colonial theory this was 1992 93 and i decided with the kind of i don't know certainty that only a certain kind of young person has that in order to be uh, an ethical uh Westerner, one must learn a non-European language. So um, that sent me to Chinese. That is, I, I basically the only way I could afford to study a non-Western language was to be at home in, in Columbus, Ohio, where my parents lived, and to study at Ohio State. And Ohio State had Chinese and Japanese, and you know, I, I didn't really have a very good reason for studying Chinese, but um, uh, I think I think I was kind of interested in Marxism. So so that pushed me in that direction, and then. Um, and then I went to, you know, went to my PhD program in English and um, sometime during that year, I thought, well, you know, maybe now that I kind of am interested in Chinese and it was one of those, you know, four hour a day programs with lots of homework, um, I thought, well, I should go to China and see if there's anything there uh, for me or if I, you know, if I like it or I'm interested in it. And then so I, I did and I had a wonderful time. Um, and uh, came back and I was talking with my advisor who was, you know, a, a psychoanalytic feminist who was most famous for a book she'd written about uh, uh, Lacan and, you know, was saying, well, I could do this from a dissertation, I could do that. And, and she said, why don't you try to do something with China because you seem to, you know, be having a good time uh, thinking about that. And, and so it was at that point that I basically had to begin to try to conceive of how to do something on China that would – not cause me to necessarily have to drop out of graduate school and go get a PhD in Chinese, but rather could be done within the framework of, of the English PhD program that I was in. And that was when I kind of began to put together a dissertation on the influence of China on um, 20th century European literature and philosophy and um, rediscovered myself as a comparatist in the sense that the, the dissertation that made sense as I put together the book involved chapters on Ezra Pound, but also on uh, the German uh, playwright Bertolt Brecht and also on the French uh, theorists who were associated with the journal Telquel, mainly uh, Julia Kristeva and, and Roland Barthes. And so I kind of became a comparatist by accident. I mean, that is to say, I wasn't planning on it, and I didn't even realize that comparative literature was a thing um, in, in, in a strong sense until I went to the American Comparative Literature Association conference in 1997, I want to say, and kind of felt like I'd found my tribe. I mean, that is, I, I, mean, I really had this kind of crazy moment of recognition and uh, of feeling, and I came coming back from that and thinking like, this is who I am and this is what I do. And that was really exciting. And then I think that then, you know, professionally, I then have spent time in, I mean, I, my first job as a lecturer was in an English department. Then I went, went to a uh, modern languages department and then I was back in an English department. Um, and then, you know, seven years ago now or six, six years ago, I moved to Penn State and, 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 joined uh, a comparative literature department here and that's kind of been become now my institutional home and it's actually the place that I'm most most comfortable so that's kind of how I've ended up in in this intellectual space and and it was you know it was an accident but it was an it was a very happy accident thank you now the book that we're here to talk about today is both extraordinarily carefully and concisely put together and also extraordinarily ambitious and we we've talked a little bit about this before but for listeners um, who haven't been privy to these earlier conversations, I just want to mention that even though this is a book, and we'll get to the details, that's geared toward um, comparativists, that's geared toward literary scholars, this is, I think, a book with extraordinarily wide ramifications for people in all kinds of fields. Um, I'm thinking per 
primarily right now of the humanities, but potentially beyond. And so I'm really, really excited to talk with you about this today and also to translate some of what's going on in the book for an audience of people who may not think um, of themselves as being interested in literary studies, but for whom I think a lot of the central concerns and even the marginal concerns in the book are extraordinarily fruitful. Um, mm-hmm. to think through. And I'm, I'm going to continue to use the word extraordinarily. Okay. <laughs> I'm not being hyperbolic. So Be my guest. Ready. Get ready for the, the hour of the extraordinarily. All so right. the book that we're talking about argues for a rethinking of world literature by paying close attention to the ways that aesthetic objects create worlds. And we'll talk over the course of our conversation about all of these crucial terms that I just mentioned. And the book is very, very careful about laying out ways that we might think of each one of these individuals terms. Mm-hmm. So in addition to doing that, you're also arguing um, later on in the book, especially in the third part of the book, that the way scholars think about and carve up time and space is of really central concern for us and not just for the content of what we produce as scholars, of, and as I've said, of literary scholars in particular, but I think this extends beyond, but also the way we train ourselves and train students and train mm-hmm. others. So you've had a, you know, an extraordinarily um, well-published career. You've worked on lots of different kinds of topics. How did you come to this particular topic and how did you decide that you needed to write this book in the context of your larger research trajectory? Well, so the first thing I want to say is that the idea for this book came to me between two and four in the morning um, in a hotel room located on the Queen Mary, which is a boat uh, that is docked permanently in Long Beach, California, where the Modernist Studies Association Conference was held in, uh, I don't know, I want to say 2005-ish. And my poor uh, uh, friend and roommate, Chris Bush, uh, was forced to stay awake uh, from 2 to 4 a.m. Uh, listening to me talk about the sort of concepts, some of the fundamental concepts in this book as I worked them out and kind of thought them through and was so, like, sweet and game and I, mean, I would have just gone to sleep if someone else had done something like this to me but he, he like totally stayed awake and you know really helped me uh, in those two hours kind of come up with the concept of the book so so at some level this is not a book I went looking for if that makes sense that is the, the book um, you know I, I can now reconstruct a kind of way in which the book came to me and comes out of some of the things I was thinking about but but it it really didn't um, it wasn't planned in a kind of coherent way it was it was planned after the fact um, of the initial impulse. So that, you know, that little story said, I think that, that the, the fundamental problem that was bothering me at the time had to do with the ways in which periodizing and aestheticizing categories, and especially the category of modernism, um, were distributed geographically. And particularly with the ways in which that distribution um, meant that anyone who wanted to work on modernism outside of sort of the immediate small frame of, you know, of the European modernist sphere and even, even actually in some respects the most restricted sphere, which is the Anglo-American sphere of, uh, you know, uh, inside that larger Venn diagram. Um, anyone wanting to take the category of modernism outside of that, that, those zones ended up having to say things like um, – well, you know, these Chinese authors are modernists, but really they're not as good modernists as the real modernists. Or um, ended up sort of saying, well, you know, they're kind of modernists, but at some other level, it's not, it's not, there's no contribution these things make to our fundamental theories of modernism because they're belated in some, in some important respect. I mean, often quite literally belated. Um, 
And so there was a way in which the, the, the history of, of the category of modernism, which is a history in, in which there's a lot of prestige associated with modernism and the thing of the prestige associated with things like Impressionism or Cubism uh, in art or Dada uh, or you know, the, the modernist city novel like in Wolf or Joyce and, and modernist poems. Um, was was operating in a way that allowed us to sort of reproduce a kind of technological narrative uh, of progress in which Europe invented things and other parts of the world eventually copied or adopted those things. And I think you see this as a kind of general problem in literary studies uh, over the past 400 years, which is to say that Europe invents realism, Europe invents painterly verisimilitude, Europe invents uh, atonal music, and so on and so forth. That is that Europe is, is the place where the sort of technologies of aesthetic representation are actually happening in some sense historically. That is to say where aesthetic history is happening um, quite literally and everywhere else is a place where aesthetic history is simply getting reproduced or reprocessed um, in the same way. Way that we think of, you know, something like, you know, the factory being reproduced or reprocessed uh, by, you know, by by various, you know, cultures outside of the, you know, outside of North America and and really Western Europe. And I I realized that until until we had a way of thinking about time differently that we were always going to be stuck in a progressive model. That is, the problem was not, as, as we had thought it was, and a, a number of different people have attacked this problem from a nif- number of different directions, the problem was not solvable in, in I think there are three ways that I think it tried, we, people tried to solve it, okay? Um, way number one would be something like uh, showing that some non-Western object actually had a great deal of influence on the West. So, you know, Pound read a bunch of Chinese poetry, Picasso looked at African masks, and so on and so forth, right? So that what you do there is you'd say, well, so it's not really that the, the origin, the originality of the quote-unquote invention of some aesthetic sort of technology of representation is actually not in the West, uh, but it's actually sort of in the relationship between the West and the non-West. I'm using these terms obviously very loosely. Um, and then the second thing that people would do is they would actually try to correct the historical record. So, you know, if you look at stuff that Christopher Bush is working on or Christopher Hill is working on in the literary sphere, what they show is that, you know, categories like the naturalist novel or categories like the modernist uh, poem are actually distributed sort of uh, historically and temporally in a, in a much more variegated way. Um, and that it's very easy to find um, – for instance, Austrian or uh, even French uh, uh, novelists or poets looking to other parts of the world, not for, not to mine for content in the way that we kind of think of the classic, you know, colonial relationship, but rather actually for form. And that is to say, looking to these other places and thinking, wow, you know, actually Japan, how can we modernize like Japan? How can we modernize aesthetically like Japan, for instance, right? And so those two – you can see how those two things are both trying to kind of undermine the, the, the story that one might otherwise tell. And I, I, what I felt like was that neither of those attacked the basic historical presumption underlying the um, – the, the pattern of thought that was that was distributing these the, the prestige of innovation in in this geographically uh, particular way, and that what one ought to try to do was to develop another pattern of historical thought um, that is to imagine or reimagine um, a new way or another way of looking at uh, literary history um, that would allow us to that would basically change the fundamentals in some ways and, 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 and by changing the fundamentals, um, 
alter the relative importance of a variety of categories that had, you know, that had, for instance, innovativeness, right, that, that had been codified in the way that everyone else was looking. So that's the, I mean, the fundamental sort of thing that I understood about the book first was that, and that actually ends up being the book's second part rather than its first or third parts, but, but that, that, that core sort of revision to um, kind of the standard ways in which we talk about literary history uh, is, is really what, what was driving my work. And that came very particularly out of a history in which I'd worked extensively on the influence of China on the West without, for all that, seeming to make much of a dent in the generalized assumptions that I'm describing here. Now, you've, in your description just now, you've alluded in different ways at different points to different manifestations of issues of form and the mm-hmm. importance of form. And this is also something that, if we have time, we'll come to um, that emerges at the very end of the book as one of the appendices in which you are urging us to think um, more about uh, materiality and form. Mm-hmm. and the way we think about texts. But I want to maybe start us off as we get into the body of the book by, by front and centering this right now, especially since it's something that you just kind of um, touched on in different ways. The form of the book is very striking. Right? It's a very um, carefully organized, it's a very uh, short, not short in a bad way. And I by short, I don't mean too short, but I mean it's written in a way that's very concise rather than, you know, a thousand pages, which you could easily right. have done. And also at various points in the book, and certainly at the very beginning in the introduction, you seem to be making um, really clear choices about the form of your own narrative. So I think at one point, um, you're situating part of the introduction or you're setting it up as a series of questions and answers which you in which you successful, or successively raise and then answer possible on points of critique. So can mm-hmm. you talk um, a little bit in whatever way and whatever part of this uh, realm of issues uh, regarding the form of your book you want to your decisions about form and structure when putting this together? Well, so, I mean, the first thing is, is to say that you're right that it could have been a very long book. And, and you know, what, what it does, I mean, the, the kind of craziest way to describe what it does is, is that it attempts to rewrite um, – the entire practice of literary history, um, especially over the last 400 years. And that's obviously a kind of crazy thing to do. And if you were going to do it, it would, you know, you'd think, well, that's the kind of thing that takes a long time. Um, and, you know, I had wanted, I mean, I thought about writing that book and I, and I thought about other books of, you know, with similar sort of similar ambitions um, that have often been very long because they've had to multiply the examples and work very slowly through things. And, and what I, partly decided was that I read it, I wanted to write a, a more conceptual book, um, a shorter book, a book that was more open um, to uh, readerly interpretation and use, and in which the kind of weight of the book itself would be a signal to the reader of its openness, right? So that when you get, you know, a massive, like 700-page tome as one of the anonymous readers um, of the of the manuscript suggested I I you know said someone oh you he you know if you're going to do this you have to write a 700 page book you know that there's something fundamentally magisterial but also incredibly off putting and closed about that kind of thing um, that is to say that it's it's mastery is also um, 
I think, a closure. And this book was really designed to lay out a series of concepts that the reader would feel free to take up and make his or her own um, and to therefore address a number of issues but to be the beginning of the conversation rather than the end of the conversation. That is, rather than opening a, a sort of set of topics and then definitively closing them in some way. I'm sure you know nothing's ever closed definitively, so people would come after me one way or the other. But rather to, to sort of write a book that, that, that felt like um, – Felt like felt to the reader like the reader was being given a toolkit, a kind of interpretive toolkit, and in which I disavowed to some extent my future mastery over the toolkit. That is to say that I, you know I, I, I say I think in a number of places these are these are not the only ways to think about this. These are the best ways I've thought about in the last four years to think about these things. And, you know, occasionally I've given talks about the book and, and um, or, you know, before the book came out and, and people would say, well, what if, you know, one of the terms I, I describe in, in the book is this term amplitude. And people have said, well, what if there's, what if I read a book in which there was no amplitude? And, you know, my response is that would be great. That would be incredibly interesting. And that would, you know, th- that is that, that it's not that you would have then disproved in some sense, some fundamental piece of the book, because I don't argue necessarily there could be no such book. I don't think there can be such a book, but I'm, I'm perfectly open to the idea that there could be. And, and, I, and I think that the, the conceptual force of these, uh, of these concepts and, and of this book in general is going to come in the long run, I mean, whether it happens or not, but from the possibility that other people are going to take these ideas up and use them, not in a way that says Eric Hayos's amplitude is this and therefore let's use Eric Hayos's concept of amplitude, but here's this thing, amplitude, and we can do X with it. And in doing X with it, we discover actually that it doesn't exactly mean what Eric Hayos thinks it means. And that would be fine. I mean, that's, you know, that's great news. And so, you know, the, the, the book is, I think, you know, you and I have talked about this before, but I, one of the things I, I said at, at the time was, is that the book is like, a, I don't know, I think of it like a kind of tree or a, some kind of organic structure with many branches made out of Legos that the reader is free to kind of break off parts of or pieces of and use in, you know, use, I don't know, you could break up the branch of a tree and use it as a toothbrush, right, or a, or a back scratcher, um, or you could take, you know, the Lego pieces apart and build a, a tractor um, with it. Uh, and, I, you know, I really hope that that's how it gets read and that that's how it, it – um, it sort of works in the world and it's written very much in that hope. And I think part of the so, – so now to return to the specific question, why did I write it the way I wrote it? The reason I wrote it the way I wrote it is because I'm trying to communicate to the reader most of the time without saying so directly that this is what this book is for and this is how you can use this book. And I think even that the way you're framing the book at the very beginning, the introduction and the, the end of it, um, in the appendices, it, it invites dialogue. I mean, it, it really, right. um, both by its form at the beginning, but also at the end, where um, and we'll get into the first three parts um, in a moment, but this part four of the book for listeners is set up as a series of appendices. And these the work that these appendices do very much is, at least as, as I read it as one reader, okay, so I as the author have given you this system now where I've laid all these things out, here are some wrenches that I'm going to throw in the works myself to complicate things and to sort of invite you to take this up and to activate the book even before, even at, you know, at the point of the authorship of 
the book to say, hey, let's think about this, let's play with the ideas I just gave you, and let's change things up. And I think that's really, really productive. And it yeah. makes a certain kind of reading. Well, I mean, I hope that's right. I mean, you know, one of the appendices, in fact, was was the product of a question that a, that a, a, a friend of mine, Joss Lavery, uh, wrote me in an email. And I make that very clear in the, in the appendix where I say, Joss Lavery wrote me this email, and he opened this question. And, 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 and so that, you know, that was often the way that the appendices worked is that people would ask me questions, and, and we'd, or I'd be talking with friends about things. And these things would come up, and they would have broken the line of the book if I'd put them in the book directly, um, for the most part. That is to say that there was a, there was a kind of internal coherence to the book that, that I, I liked. And then, as you say, the, the, the point of the appendices is then to go back and say, okay, well, you know, I said this, but now what if, in fact, instead of three parts to this, there's a fourth part? Uh, what happens then? And, and again, that was part of, you know, especially in that case. Uh, but I think there are other, you know, in, in some sense of the appendices, Priya Joshi is someone else and Jed Esty are two people. Uh, weirdly, all three of them were at Penn where I had a really incredibly productive uh, uh, two or three days uh, once. Um, but, you know, that their, that their voices are in there and I'm really responding to things that they've talked about and, and, and engaging with them in ways that <clears throat> are designed to showcase in advance uh, precisely the kind of, you know, the kind of responsiveness that I'm, that I'm looking for and the kind of self-responsiveness that I'm also willing to sort of, you know, that, that, that I, I don't think that I am the master of the material in this book. Um, and, and I continue to think about these problems and work with them and I, I assume that what I – my job is not to reinforce or stabilize um, in a kind of movement of mastery the categories that I develop here, but rather to follow them and follow the spirit of innovation and uh, experimentation that's here by continuing to innovate and experiment with these categories. Now, speaking of these categories, um, what we find in part one of the book, part one of the book is called Literary World, and here um, is where you're giving us a language that we're going to be able to use to, to get into the material in the second and third and, and the fourth parts of the book. This part of the book offers a theory of what you call literary worldedness and a way to talk about literary worlds a language for describing them. Now, this is actually of, um, even though you're very specific in the book that you're talking about literary theory and, and literary theory of modern literature in particular, this is um, right off the bat something that I think is extraordinarily relevant to many of us who use this language of world this, world that, you know, world literature, world history, global, etc., etc., without um, necessarily taking the time to give a kind of critical um, or think critically about what those terms mean, what they can mean, whether they mean, how they mean, and how we might make them mean in different ways. So can you start off uh, the discussion of this part of the book by talking a little bit about this concept of literary worldedness? Um, what, what does it mean to talk about literary worldedness, and how would you like readers to develop that language in this part of the book? Well, I mean, I would say two things, right? That, that first of all, I mean, one of the one of the things that that is that is clear, I think, I hope is clear to anyone living today in academia, but even outside academia, is that th there is a lot of prestige and a lot of um, uh, um, a very strong sense of of um, power that is circulating around concepts like world uh, and a variety of cognates. Um, globe, planet, um, you know, less, to some lesser extent, cosmos. Um, but I think the big ones are obviously globe, globe insofar as it sort of leads into globalization, but then world insofar as it sort of pushes us to think about questions of world history, uh, world literature, um, you know, the question of cosmopolitanism uh, coming up 
you know, obviously through the Enlightenment, but but now is I mean, I think you know th- there was a series of books, especially in the in the uh, early two thousands, late nineties, early two thousands, cosmopolitanism. Um, so, which is where you see the word cosmos kind of coming in in, in through the you know the back door, as it were, um, in the Chinese context, uh, arguments over sort of the contemporary meaning and value of a, a sort of semi political, semi social concept like datong, uh, or um, or you know older concepts like tianxia. Um, and then, of course, you know, in French, you have something like mondialisation, which feels very different than globalisation. So that mondialisation is is kind of warmer than globalisation. Globalisation feels, you know, computery and so on and so forth. And then, you know, Gayatri Spivak has this concept of planetarity, uh, um, and Yg Dimmick has a book uh, or an essay called Literature for the Planet. I think a, a book or an essay. So this is way in which there's this kind of proliferation of world concepts, and um, I'm going to call them all world concepts. But I think probably technically it would be best to say that world is also an example rather than the ur concept to which all of these refer it is itself an example of a, a concept that you know would be called the ur the ur world concept um which is to say a concept of totality of completion of fullness and each of these concepts feels quite different that is they have you know different emotional valences different cultural and social valences and so on and so forth and so one of the projects that the book tries to open up is to, to toward the kind of comparative history of world ideas. That is to say, you know, what are the, what are the concepts that we operate with um, that govern our sense of totality or wholeness or complete, completed wholeness? Um, and I have an epigraph in the book from Durkheim, which he argues that the social is itself a kind of world concept that's connected to the notion of totality. And, you know, totality, which is, a, of course, a Marxist concept, is another world concept in the sense that it's another concept that, that attempts to describe some kind of full uh, and complete and self-sustaining whole. Uh, the other concepts that we're working with, I think, today, which are not so much globe-oriented uh, as, 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 you know, other-oriented, are things like networks uh, or systems. Mm-hmm. Right, so all these concepts out there, and one of the things I realized was that that we, especially in literature, we talk a lot about worlds. I mean, that, that of, of the two, I think the two or three most important of these concepts in literature: uh, planetarity, worldness, and globalization. You know, with a, with a kind of maybe you know systems theory and systems coming into fourth, fourth place. But again, let's remember that you know it's Wallersteinian world systems theory that's after all at stake in a lot of the sort of large scale historiographic uh, sort of interpretation of uh, of the type that's done like in a Chinese context by someone like Andre Gunder Frank, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, that's the, uh, I mean, you know, we begin with that and we say, okay, what the hell is a world and what, is it, what does it look like? And it, what is the relationship of, of literature or history um, to something like worldedness? Um, and it seemed to me that one of the problems was that there was – well, so let me back up. Uh, the, the, the other thing that I recognize, so, I, so you have this initial recognition, right, which is that, in fact, world concepts can themselves be historicized and compared and, 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 and localized and, and, and so on. At the same time, we actually have a very common use of the word world to describe literature. That is, we, we talk very easily and casually about something like Balzac's world or Chandler's world or, or Proust's world or Virginia Woolf's world or Cao Xuetin's world or whatever. And yet, you know, if you try to think about what does that actually mean, what, what, what is, you know, what does it mean to describe the world of a novel, what you realize is that it's largely a kind of impressionistic practice. That is to say, it's a practice that um, asks us to, uh, you know, say some things about how we feel or how a world feels to us, but that we don't have any kind of um, 
specialized or specific vocabulary to talk about aspects of aesthetic worldliness. Um, and so I, basically what you could say – one of the more things you could say is the goal of the book is to think those two problems at the same time. That is to ask what does – if we think of literature as this, or of aesthetic objects as producing worlds, and I would add, since you're a historian, that I think you know historians regularly produce theories of worlds, and 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 you know not just Hegel, but but in fact modern historians regularly produce sort of world concepts and world structures that frame the, the way that they think about the world and how it works, even if they're talking about a very small or local uh, system. The boundaries of any given system that gets talked about, the boundaries of a book, are essentially boundaries that have with them and carry with them a kind of unstated theory of completeness. That is, that's how you know the book is supposed to end. Um, some of those are epistemological for historians. That is. You know, you, you can end the book when you've done enough archival research, but that's a, I mean, part of my argument is that that's in fact a kind of cosmological concept. Um, but obviously, in literature, we have not only kind of these things operating at the level of form as they do in history, but very much at the level of content. So, you know, the the whole question of the book is what if we think of worlds not just as and worldedness and planetarity and globalization, not just as things that literature can be about but rather as things that literature is always thinking through, and not just literature, but I think all aesthetic objects are always thinking through. That, and, and, and we then can argue, not that you know, globalization has something to do with literature, right? that you know, it's you know, about circulation of prizes and prestige or, or of influence and so on and so forth, but rather that like globalization, which is obviously a kind of world concept of a particular type, literature is always, and aesthetic objects are always thinking about the nature of worldedness and, and how worldedness works. And that the challenge would then be to sort of figure out ways in which we could describe aesthetic worldedness in a kind of more coherent or more simplistic or simple-minded way that would allow us to uh, engage in comparative analyses of, say, the world of Jane Austen Sanditon and the world of, uh, you know, an Urdu novel like uh, Chugtai's uh, The Crooked Line, about which we might, you know, occasionally have something to say, you know, one way or the other, but, but you know, whose worlds we would end up usually describing in ways that would make it very hard to do comparative activity. Now, you've mentioned several times of comparison, and in the book, one of the things that motivates this development of a vocabulary to talk about and to describe aesthetic worldedness and aesthetic worlds is just that it, um, or is exactly that it allows us, among other things, to compare works. Why is this move to comparison so important? And what makes this so crucial? And in, in part, what makes, um, or related to that, um, you describe this mode of comparison as being important um, in part because the stakes include making what we might you know, think of in huge air quotes as non-Western literature not just important but necessary. Right. So why is comparison so crucial um, as an analytic here and in what way does this make non-Western literature necessary, not just important? Well, so I, I think one of the things I'll say about that is that it's, it's – the, the categories I, I develop in the first part of the book that are designed to kind of give us more specific ways to talk about aspects of worldedness um, are deliberately ahistorical. Um, you can historicize them in any particular text. I mean, that is, you can say, you know, to, to use the category I've been using as an example, the amplitude is different in the 19th century British novel uh, from what it is in the you know, 20th century Chinese novel. But 
you know, something about like the notion of a word like amplitude, it, 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 part of what you're saying is it's different, but actually something is fundamentally the same. Otherwise, th- these two things wouldn't be called amplitude. And so the, the key is that by being transhistorical, those concepts aren't subject to the same kind of logic of inventiveness that uh, concepts like modernism or realism tend to be, or the novel for instance, right? So people ask occasionally, I mean, well, this is a very frequent question implicitly in literature. Why doesn't X have the novel? Or why did the novel develop here first? Mm-hmm. Right? And so again, you see that you're treating the novel as a category of, uh, that's very much like a technology, right? Um, and, you know, Franco Moretti's very famously said that magical realism seems to be the only major non-Western aesthetic innovation of the last sort of, you know, 200 years. So, I mean, you think about what, and I think he's right. If you begin with the series of historical premises that he begins with, then I think the conclusion is more or less correct. Um, And so the question was, how do you develop categories that don't actually bear within them already the set of premises that, uh, that are articulated? So in with, you know, with a concept like amplitude or, or aesthetic worldliness, it doesn't make any sense to say who invented aesthetic worldliness, because part of my claim is that in fact, the aesthetic object always is world bearing and, and world, world inventing. So no one invents it. I mean, that is, or, or society invents it. Um, And then, you know, similarly with amplitude, it doesn't make any sense to say that amplitude was invented at a certain moment. You can say so-and-so invented a particular way of using amplitude or so-and-so represents a significant shift in the orientation of amplitude towards, you know, the social or the psychological or something like that. That seems perfectly viable to me. But the, the relative weight of that innovativeness is much diminished when you adopt this other perspective. And the value for that is that, for instance, if you think about magical realism, and you say to someone, what should I read? What should I read to know about magical realism? The answer is you have to go read the Latin American boom text. You have to go and everyone would say, you, you know, you have to read Marquez. Mm-hmm. Right now, it, you know, it's the same with modernism. How should I really understand modernism? Well, Virginia Woolf or James Joyce um, or, you know, or, some, or Ezra Pound or Wallace Stevens. So there's this sense that basically the, the moment of innovation is also the moment of a kind of fundamental decision about the qualities of the category. Whereas for a category like amplitude or a category like worldliness, it doesn't make any sense to go to one historical moment to say this is when this appears and therefore the person who uses it this way, um, even if they're using it in an unusual way, historically speaking, is, is somehow the, the singular origin of the way to think about amplitude. So what that does then in turn is it gives someone who's interested in, in the history of the aesthetic and the history of, of aesthetic development and creation a reason to go read – something from the 80s or 90s that from a, the perspective, let's say, you know, I, t- I always use uh, the Brazilian poet uh, Harold de Campos as, 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 as an example. You know, we know he read Joyce and we know Joyce didn't read him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you want to think about sort of what is the modernism of Harold de Campos, your best bet is to say he does something to modernism. That is, there's something called modernism and he changes it in some way. And, and this is, you know, this is a very common kind of structure in, in, in the study of modernism where people write books where there's an adjective in front of the word modernism, which is always designed to indicate the degree to which some group of people under, um, you know, under discussion has modified some fundamental thing that remains untouchable, right, which is this concept of modernism, which remains fully associated with this, these, these sort of moments of origin. Whereas for amplitude, you know, if you want to say, like, how does amplitude work? Harold de Campos is just as good as Joyce. And in fact, the story's not over. 
right? That is that is the story of 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 development of the development of the aesthetic doesn't end when you have these transhistorical comparative concepts, and so that means I think fundamentally that any piece of work can always be challenged on the basis of its failure to engage in comparison and that in turn every piece of work that does any kind of you know any kind of uh, labor on, on on whether it's history or, or literature or philosophy has to be much more modest about the kinds of claims it's making I'll, I'll just give you an example I have in front of me here uh, on my desk a book by Ian Watt called The Rise of the Novel now its examples are all British I would be perfectly happy if Ian Watt had called his book The, Exam- the Rise of the English Novel but he doesn't, right? And and this is not just Ian Watts' problem. It's the problem across. Uh, it's across a variety of fields. The uh, you know there's an Oxford handbook out of um, out of England, Oxford, UK, um, that is uh, you know that that is an Oxford handbook of global modernisms. And the structure of that handbook is very odd in the sense that it's it has all these sections. Like there'll be a section called Modernism in the City, and you know Modernism and uh, Women, or Modernism and Technology, and then there are a bunch of essays in each thing. And then at some point, all of a sudden, it gets far enough away from the center, and you get a section called like Modernism in Scandinavia, Modernism in South Asia. And so what that reveals is, in fact, that it's not just modernism in the city. It's actually modernism in the European city mm-hmm. or modernism and the European woman. Mm-hmm. And, and, but because of the way that the category functions, that you, you see that quite unconsciously people with the best of intentions – I mean they're doing a handbook called Global Modernisms, which is supposed to change the way we think about modernism by making it more global – have totally reproduced a kind of structure in which they have unconsciously forgotten to specify the geographic and historical specificity of their of their of their sort of fundamental analytic category, which is modernism, right? So amplitude doesn't work like that. Worldedness doesn't work like that. That is to say, there's no you. You always have to put an adjective in front of it, um, or you know you don't. But then you have to be sure that your examples are really inclusive. And even then, as we you know, since no one's going to write an infinitely long book, you're always going to have to sort of frame it. And so, so I think there's it, it's it's a push towards making it. If someone's going to say something like the rise of the novel or the rise of amplitude, you know, you're going to have to ask which amplitude and where, and you can always challenge them by asking comparative questions. Where if you want, if you, someone wants to talk about the rise of modernism right now, that you can't really challenge them by giving them Chinese examples, mm-hmm. because in fact everyone knows that the rise of modernism happened in this one place, right? So, so that so that it it actually these categories that we use and they're in wide use, and I, I think this is true of categories like realism also and postmodernism um, and and really any number of aesthetic categories actually bear within them a kind of break or, or, or um, frame that blocks and, and allows for non-comparativity. And the novel is a perfectly good example of that. I mean, that is when we talk about the novel, do we include, you know, Genji? Do we include um, the Chinese classical novel, right? Do we include, you know, a whole variety of prose fiction that, uh, you know, like the Makamat or the picaresque that, you know, don't exactly look like the novel. Well, you know, one of the things you can say about the novel is that as a category, what it does, the way that it functions is specifically to sort of, you know, allow us to stop comparing. And I think it's good that we have categories that allow us to stop comparing because everybody has to stop working and rest sometime. But I think it would be also good if we had some categories that, that, inherently had more comparative thrust to them so that we could then, as I said, you know, as you, as you said in your question, I said in the book, make, reactivate the potential contributions of contemporary work to 
the history we already know. And I don't just mean non-Western work to the Western literary history of or aesthetic history of the last 400 years, but I also mean, for instance, uh, the contributions of um, work done in, in a single country, say again, China, to the things we think we know about, you know, the Chinese classical texts of the, you know, you know, some earlier dynasty, the UN dynasty, say. That is to say, if, if, if these new texts can teach us something new about what, say, amplitude is, then that might allow us to go back and revise our sense of what amplitude was doing all along. So do you want to, I mean, this is kind of music to my ears because I think a lot of this translates really, really nicely to the kinds of problematics and the kinds of issues that we face as historians of science and medicine and kind of another field that I work in. And a lot of what you're raising also speaks to something that's you know, a prevailing concern throughout the book um, and in literary studies as well as, I, I would argue, beyond, which is a concern with time. And sort of you're arguing, at least as I'm hearing it and as I read it, for um, a way to move away from these notions of thinking about and cutting up categories that prioritize a particular vision of time, that prioritize a particular way of thinking about and working in time that mm-hmm. you know, is all about origins and innovations and movements and directions that also prioritize you know, certain forms of power um, that we are moving away from if we enact this mode of uh, literary history, literary comparison, and I think um, more generally textual comparison that you're presenting to us in the book. Now, I don't want you to... Um, you know, to go through necessarily and describe all of the six variables or mechanisms of world production. I mean, you've talked about one of them, amplitude, and I will just gesture at the other five. They're in the book for listeners. Go read the book. Um, and there's lots of really great discussions of completeness, connectedness, dynamism, and et cetera, et cetera. As I'm hearing you talking, though, something is uh, emerging for me that didn't occur to me when I was reading the book, and I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about it. You give us this structure, so these six variables or mechanisms of world production and literature, in addition to in the next section of the book um, where you're giving us a kind of world-oriented history of modern literature, three modes um, that are central to enacting these new Mm -hmm. or enabling these new forms of comparative analysis, realism, romanticism, modernism, but defined in very um, kind of innovative particular ways. Do you think, um, so these put together, these six plus three, let us compare forms of literature we may not um, have felt or have been justified in or uh, realized could be compared before or compared in the same way. Yes. Do you want to put any kind of limit in or limit on what counts as literature. So does something need to, in order to be, in, in your new system of the six plus three, does something need to have particular qualities in order to even make it into the fields that we're looking at within which we're comparing new kinds of units? Well, I mean, so two things. I mean, one is that, you know, insofar as the, the these these categories and modes are designed to allow people to think about worldedness, uh, you know, there's absolutely no reason to stop at the boundary of literature. And that's one of the reasons I do occasionally, I mean, I was very careful about this because, of course, I'm not trained as an art historian. Um, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm trained a little bit as a film scholar. So I, I mean, I have examples from film and television in the book and, and also from a wide variety of types of literary documents. But And I was tempted at one point to extend the whole thing to painting, but I, I just, at some point I realized I just don't know enough to, to really pull that off. Um, but it, So certainly the categories that are in the book are really, I mean, I, I would be perfectly happy. And again, it, I, it's perfectly possible that someone would say, I'm, I applied these to sculpture and they don't work. 
or I applied these to sculpture or I tried to think about them. I mean, applied is, is, is actually really the wrong word. I tried to use these to think about sculpture in a new way and um, I didn't think of anything new. That would be really tremendously interesting. Right? Because I'm sure I have used them. I, I use them in the book very clearly. I show how you can think of lots of what, what seem to me quite interesting new things in relation to a relatively wide variety uh, historically and geographically of cultural and literary, fictional, non-fictional uh, texts, filmic texts um, and objects. So if it turns out that like for instance someone says, well, I try to use this sculpture and, and in fact they don't, they're not useful there, right? which is the test. Um, that is that if they didn't allow me to think something interesting, then that would be actually for me tremendously exciting. Because it would imply that something about, you know, uh, again, assuming the person made a good faith effort, whatever, but uh, th- that something about sculpture was resistant to this sort of world uh, uh, pattern, world, world creating or world oriented pattern that I'm describing in, in, in the book. So, you know, or, and, and again, it wouldn't have to be sculpture. It could be someone saying, well, this just doesn't work for, you know, China or Japan or India or Sanskrit or something. I mean, you know, there are all kinds of things it could or could not work for um, that I don't have any access to. And, um, you know, and again, what, what I mean by work is help me think new and interesting things, right? right? Not apply in the sense that you apply them and say, yes, they work, ta-da, right? That, that would be the most boring possible kind of, of scholarship. Uh, but rather, you know, that you, you use them and you, you come up with things that engage you and are interest you and, and hopefully, you know, that, that allow you to transform the categories or, or extend or, or develop them in new ways so that the categories themselves then could be used by someone else in a new way, right? That would be the, that would be the goal. So that's A, which is that, you know, the, the, the world structure categories can be, as far as I can tell, are open to, to you know, for, for anyone to pick up and, and do anything with. Um, you know, as far as literariness is concerned, um, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, um, I actually happen to believe that there shouldn't be, uh, in general, national language departments. Um, so, but also that I, I think that you know when I try to think about the specificity of of the literary object, um, it clearly includes, especially if you go further back in the past, a wide variety of genres. So, if you say what is what makes what, how do you know what's literature? You know, the answer isn't that it's fictional or imaginary or imaginative um, in a, in a kind of you know th- that is that it invents things that didn't have never existed, right? Um, in a kind of you know simple minded way, um, because you know lots of you know, lots of literature pre-1600 doesn't do that. And lots of, you know, what I think of as literature or, 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 you know, so at some point, you know, I think you end up with, for me at least, a pretty strong sort of set of choices, which is one, either what you do in literary studies is you study things that people have considered literature, right? Which is to say, you just kind of kick the relativist can down the road, right? So you say, well, you know, in, in 19th century, people thought literature was this. So, you know, then you have to deal with the fact that the word literature doesn't exist in all languages. And even if it does, it means different things, right? So you have, you know, so, but you could imagine that, right? That you could imagine some version of it. The other thing you could say is that, you know, literary studies is, you know, interested in things that are made of language. And, you know, so that you could, you could reduce it to a theory in some sense of medium, Mm-hmm. Right, and and then say, look, at at some bottom level, at some, at the at the end of the day, language has some very specific qualities that are particular, and that justify developing a specialized vocabulary for thinking about them and talking about them, and that that's you know that's what we're going to do. I, I'm I'm I like that second option more. 
Um, because I think you can then always still be relative, you know, that, that is, you can ask those questions in a relativist way and in an inclusive way and in a serious way. Um, but that, that tries to actually develop a kind of, you know, as broad a category as possible out of as broad a series of examples as possible. And also, um, what you're saying, especially in this last part, gets out one of the things that at least I read you as um, asking us to think more openly and critically and deeply about in the appendix or in one of the appendices of the book, which is the ways that different media can generate forms of storytelling that we might not think mm-hmm. of initially mm-hmm. as stories or as, as being part of the realm of what we think of as literature. Um, yeah. So... In mentioning briefly uh, the you know, area studies departments, um, etc., you're actually getting us really nicely to part three of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's a ton of stuff that we could talk about in parts one and two that um, I will just mention for listeners. Read them. Read parts one and two because there's a really nicely and really beautifully worked out um, not just account of these modes and different um, elements of vocabulary for thinking about its aesthetic worlds, but also this really clever move in part two of the book that I'll just mention because, you know, as a historian, I, I love when these sorts of things happen. When you're where you're both, um, in a way, grounding the emergence of ways of thinking about worlds and modern worlds in terms of universalism in a very particular historical moment, and also at the end asking us to rethink um, how how we envision history and what a historical analysis looks like um, in the first place in a way that I think is both really useful um, and really destabilizing in a useful way. And that brings us, um, I think, nicely to the third part of the book, which is also about destabilization. And here it's destabilization or a call for destabilization of the kinds of entrenched um, structures and the kind of architecture that enables a very particular kind of analysis in the institutional frameworks in which we work and really cuts off the possibilities of all kinds of other modes of analysis. So this book takes us into the institutional context of literary studies, but again, I think they translate. Um, well beyond literary studies into other fields, certainly to history and history of science. One of the concerns here is the connection between the content of an academic field and the training of uh, of its practitioners. And this part of the book, and, and I, I want to ask you to speak a little bit um, about this, if you would. You're arguing here that a kind of what you call normative historicism, a certain way of thinking about cutting up and teaching and practicing time and its units, structures the profession, and that this kind of historicism also structures the way we think, the way we read, the way we train students, and, and it, it makes certain kinds of work impossible. So mm-hmm. would you speak to that um, for, you know, for as long as you want, any aspect of that that you think is particularly important. Yeah, I mean, it comes out, I mean, obviously, you know, what, what's interesting is that you, you can see, I mean, as I'm thinking about the course of this interview and how people are going to be hearing it, is, is you can, it, it's going to be clear, I think, how what I'm going to say is comes directly out of what I've been saying all along. And, and the last time you and I talked, it wasn't, it wasn't as clear as this. And I think this is, so this has been, you know, this has been fruitful in that way. Um, I mean, the very simple thing to say is that I've recently become very, very interested in the ways in which academics create institutional formats that contain with them presumptions about um, knowledge that they then, generally speaking, fail to recognize. Um, uh, 
and fail to recognize because in some sense those presumptions are appear to them in forms that either feel normal or natural or appear to them in forms that feel professional and institutional and so don't come in for the same kind of analysis as uh, they you know academics who are perfectly sophisticated about all kinds of other things um, will you know use to understand a literary text or a historical event or, or a philosophical dilemma. So the, the particular one has to do with the ways in which uh, most of the humanities today are organized um, in the undergraduate curriculum and in the graduate curriculum and in the training and in the journals and on the job market around um, historical periods. And um, it simply you know, occurs to me to ask what the impact of that almost mandatory structure is on the way that we think um, and the way that we organize knowledge and the ways in which our curricula express theories of knowledge. So I'll give you, I guess, one sort of quite plain and practical example and one sort of larger conceptual sort of thing. So the plain and practical example is this. If you think about the way that the history curriculum is organized in most American universities, and this is actually also true of literature, what you do is you begin with a large survey class, usually taught by a graduate student or an adjunct faculty member, in which you cover some huge swath of human history. Um, I, in one of my first jobs, I taught actually Western Civ from, the, you know, from Mesopotamia to the present in a year. Um, then, you know, in your sophomore year, you maybe will at that point move to a kind of large-scale national history survey. And then in your junior year to uh, maybe a single century or a single period, it could be, you know, between the wars or post-45 or something. And then, you know, the senior seminar for the major is going to be some very specific and particular kind of thing. The, you know, the novels of Virginia Woolf or the problem of uh, – uh, boredom in the 20th century or craft production in uh, 19th century Pennsylvania or something like that, right? This is implicitly, right, a hierarchy of knowledge in which it is, it, it is suggested, I think, I mean, I'm just going to argue it is suggested by these things that, in fact, what one does as one grows as, as an intellectual and as a scholar is to focus more and more narrowly on objects and that large-scale knowledge is essentially for, um, you know, people who are slightly less smart or need to know slightly less and it's, in fact, taught by the least prestigious members of the profession often, not always, but often. Um, and that, you know, that, that the nature of knowledge is to focus very heavily on contexts of a certain size, which would be roughly the size in which we publish, um, especially early on in our careers, um, and then roughly the size of the senior seminar in some sense, or, the, you know, or, the certain, or a certain kind of graduate course. So, you know, what's the impact of that? I mean, what if you imagine a, a university where, where someone would say, well, you know, in your, in your first year, what we'll do is we'll give you all a course on 19th century craft production in Pennsylvania because you can't handle you know, some large-scale historical, you, you can't think about modernity because you're not, you're not smart enough. You can't think about, you know, what, what civilization is because you haven't kind of grasped the particulars that would allow you to master the generality and worked its way up to a senior seminar that asks students to think very seriously about something, again, like something very large, like modernity or, or um, you know, uh, the social. And said, you know, when you really have achieved sort of you know, if not greatness, then at least the mirror of greatness uh, is is when you're able to sort of think and 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 talk seriously about these large scale concepts. You know, that's just upside down world, but it's an upside down world that that shows us pretty clearly the ways in which our curriculum is communicating to students all the time, right? 
The other thing to say, right, is, 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 which is also some, somewhat practical, um, is to say something like, why do periods get shorter when you get closer to the present? Um, and this is true in history departments and it's true in literature departments as well. And we don't have a really good answer for that. I mean, that, you know, one of the things people will say to me occasionally is, well, it's because there's more information in the periods. And so that's, you know, they, they, the way that we teach sort of changes because in fact, what, what we think of as a historical period is actually a kind of proxy for a certain kind of informational density. Mm-hmm. Now, no one has actually ever said that in a book because I think it's probably an indefensible position. But if we really think that, then we ought to be teaching our students that because – and if we know that, we might want to develop some theories about how much density it takes to change a period so we could be on the lookout for when in the next new period is going to show up. Uh, I mean that would be really news, right? We could actually put it in the newspaper. Um, but the point is, in fact, that you know that, that that's silly. That no one could do that. I mean, that, that is that it's not. Or, more, or maybe I'd like to see someone try, though, actually, because I think it might be interesting. But in fact, that probably what happens is that periods just get shorter um, as they approach the present because we're narcissistically more interested in the recent past than we are in, in the distant past. And that you know, five hundred years from now, uh, when people uh, study our centuries, they will treat us as we treat the early moderns, which is to say they will lump us together in a a giant unit of some size in which all of the very fine distinctions that we've been made, you know, that we've made between, say, modernism and high modernism and and late modernism and and postmodernism will be erased uh, under the weight of some larger category, which may be the digital era or, you know, I don't know, the the information age um, or something like that. I mean, who knows, right? And the minute you think that, right, the, one of the things you realize that's quite interesting is that, in fact, we might be in the middle of, you know, there, there's no more truth uh, to the claim that we're in the, the let's say, post-postmodern period than there is to the claim made 500 years from now that we're a part of the information age. Mm-hmm. That, that is, that these are simply a matter of um, epistemological perspective and of the ways in which we manage and organize evidence and um, generality and particularity. Why not train our students? Why not think of ourselves professionally as oriented towards um, something like that? That is, as oriented towards scholars who, whose job it will be to sort of imagine either the past in very small units or the present in very large ones. Just again, to, to sort of play upside down world with, with the categories. Um, or ask us to think really hard about what we think history is insofar as we think history is an object that produces periods, right? This is a question that Claude Levi-Strauss asks, uh, uh, you know, already 40 years ago. So these, these are kind of all major things that, and they all intersect and I think they all, you know, interfere with one another. But, but what they do effectively is they, they, they ask us to think and to take a, a kind of a, a scholarly responsibility for the categories in which in which we're training our students, at, you know, at the undergraduate level, but I think especially at the graduate level where, at least in literature, the job categories, 90% of them are oriented towards a very specific kind of periodicity. Um, and so you have to train as that in order to be legible for the market. And then people say, well, why are we training all these people in this? Well, it's because we need someone to cover the undergraduate curriculum, right? But why do you need someone to cover the curriculum? Well, because the curriculum is organized by periods. So it's a kind of, you know, it's a tail chasing exercise uh, at some level. And, and it seems to me that we would be much better off 
not getting rid of periods entirely because I think they're useful concepts and, they, and obviously a lot of work has been done under their aegis, but of asking ourselves whether there are radically different modes mm-hmm. of historical analysis um, that could usefully be included in a department so that you would be you know, working in your office on your whatever period you work on, but that you would have someone down the hall who would not be working on periods, but who would say work on cities, right? Just to pick a thematic thing. And you'd say, well, what kinds of cities? You'd be like, well, I work on all cities. And I try to be, I know a lot less about everything else in order to become really smart about cities in a vast geographic or historical range. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, having those two people next door to each other, among other things, would illustrate to graduate students that there are, there are, there's more than one way to be a historian, right? Um, that is, or that there's, there's more than one fundamental historiological kind of approach to being a historian. And at the undergraduate level, again, it would teach undergraduates because presumably these people would offer different kinds of classes, uh, you know, that, that there are different ways of thinking about history. And if, I, if we take the goal of the humanities to basically be to, you know, teach students to think historically or to think philosophically or to think literarily, Right, then, that, then I think a diversity of, of legitimate methods is good. And part of my argument about the way that periodization affects the institution is essentially that, that, that we have a wide variety and we have social historians and economic historians and so on and so forth. We have, a, we have a diversity within that frame. We have almost no diversity within the sort of periodicity frame. Right, so there's plenty of diversity otherwise. That is, there are people who work on Africa and people who work on Asia and people who work on North America and so on. People do social history and economic history and cultural history. And, and, so, and so there's plenty of that stuff. But everyone is in a period. And that's, uh, you know, it seems to me a, a huge limitation. And we ought to think very hard about the ways in which that keeps us from doing certain kinds of work and, and also the ways in which it um, inculcates certain patterns of mind. Um, in in the entire profession, both both again, both literature and history. I mean, given what you just said, I can imagine putting together a history course where you have the same event, and in thirteen different lectures and thirteen different um, or thirteen different class meetings, you periodize it thirteen different ways. Yeah, I mean, right. So I've I've thought about that for for a, I've thought about that for a course in literature where you take one novel. Let's say, I mean, you don't really, you can't really manage this, but imagine you had a 16-week semester. So you got one novel and you teach it four ways. And the first time you teach it, you teach three other novels by the same author, and then you, this is your last novel. The second time you teach it, you teach um, a novel from the year 1000, a novel from the year 1500, let, let's say thematically interested in some of the issues of the novel, a novel from the year 1700, and then this novel, which is from like 1950 or whatever. And the third time you teach it, you teach this novel and, four no- and three other novels that happen after. Mm-hmm. Right, and then the fourth time you do something else, right? But the, the whole point would be that each time you read this novel, it is radically different, right? Because of the historical context into which it's been placed, right? Right, and and the point of the course would be then to like make students aware of the of that fact. Now, again, you can just say this and make them aware of it, but like you know, there's something that happens when you do things in the room right. that is incredibly useful. And so, I think that your your you know your 13 ways of looking at a single historical event is is exactly that kind of idea. Um, and I think you could scale these things up and down um, in ways that would again be be remarkably uh, useful for students in, in terms of allowing them to think about their work as making a set of choices. Mm-hmm. And, and having to justify a set of choices. I mean, think in the same way that I, I want people to have to justify their choice of only British novels for their book on the rise of the novel. It would be good if we, you know, we justified implicitly or explicitly our decision to restrict our 
sort of historical framework to a certain field um, at the beginning of the project and, and recognized and, and were honest and open about the ways in which that, that limitation both made the work possible but also created a series of blind spots um, you know, and, and, and in some sense, to come back to the appendices of the book, this is what the appendices are, which is in each case, they're about here's a blind spot that's the result of the way that I wrote this book and the way that I thought about things in this book. And so here's a way in which you could sort of stick a lever into the book and lever it open and then stuff in a bunch more content that would then have a transformative effect on all the content that surrounds it, right, um, and on the shape of the whole. So I, I think that, that in that way also the book then models precisely this kind of um, – openness and and uh, care um, but also for me exploratory fun that comes when you actually talk quite you know quite quite freely about the ways in which you know that your work is both limited and possible precisely because of its limitations but also extendable precisely because of the limitations that it has now Eric this is a, the last thing I, that I want to ask you before we um, have our wrap-up ritual is to talk a little bit about how this has shaped your own teaching recently. I know you've been teaching a course recently that actually tries to put some of these ideas into motion and structuring the way you are teaching a seminar. So can you speak a little bit to um, either that specific seminar and or the, the larger impacts that this has had on your own teaching? Well, so, I mean, I, I am, I'm teaching a course that, uh, that I'm just finishing up um, in which I, I had students read kind of classic cosmological sort of theory, Mircea Eliade, uh, uh, among others, in which we're sort of thinking about the cosmological sort of worlds of, the, you know, the Babylonians, of the, the classic, you know, the ancient Indians, the Chinese, um, but also the Europeans and, you know, the, the, the Hebrews and, and so on. That, that is really trying to sort of think about a kind of analysis that is actually pretty world-oriented. I mean, it calls itself cosmology or calls itself sort of the analysis of cosmology um, that, that is very much world-oriented but, but is not now done on the present. That is, it's not the kind of thing we do um, to ourselves in, in the same way. That is, we tend to think of cosmologies as things that people used to have that no one has anymore. And the goal of the class was actually to do enough of that that we became – you know, if not exactly experts, at least familiar with some of the basic patterns of thought that happen when you do that cosmological analysis. And then um, we moved immediately then to the 1800s and we started reading modern novels and asking, are there ways in which these terms, that is these cosmological terms and, and, and modes of thought, could be usefully applied to and, and show us things about the novels that we're reading that we wouldn't have otherwise noticed. And that's been, you know, really productive. I mean, that's for me, I've, I've really learned a lot. And, and I think the students, it was an undergrad class, so I had to kind of explain at the beginning why I thought this was important and give them some background. But I, I think the students, well, first of all, I mean, I know, I know they like the class, but I also think that they were happy to be able to think, for instance, of something like globalization as a cosmological structure. Um, and one of the values of that for me is, is also that, that I'm trying to bring that kind of cosmological perspective into the present partly as a way of breaking the pre-modern modern border that is so often kind of a, a large-scale periodizing restriction. That is, you know, we tend to think of the pre-moderns as primitive in a certain way and they, they organize cosmologies because of their, you know, of, of their, their modes of thought. And we don't do cosmologies because we've broken the disciplines into various sub-disciplines. We've broken, you know, if you read one of the old cosmologies, if you read something like Plato's Timaeus, I mean, there's biology, there's chemistry, there's uh, sociology, there's anthropology, there's uh, astronomy, obviously, there's a huge chunk of physics, um, uh, there are there there's concepts of the aesthetic as uh, political science, um, all brought into one kind of large scale vision of 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 the world. Um, 
we we you know we tend to think of ourselves as better than that. But I mean, I think if you look at something like globalization, it's quite clear that we're not better than that in any strong sense, um, and that in fact we we can learn things about ourselves by putting ourselves in a history that begins you know five or ten thousand years ago, rather than beginning you know around when Copernicus you know figures out that the Earth doesn't or not figures out. But, articulates in a way that everyone else finds believable finally that the earth doesn't uh, or the sun doesn't revolve around the earth so that's you know um, that's one thing that it's done and then the other thing that it's done is it's made me much more willing to um, I don't know violate the kind of normal um, modes in which one teaches so that and to think both about units that are larger than a, than a single course and, and also smaller than a single course. So a course that I'd like to teach but haven't taught is a course called Beginnings. And the idea of a course called Beginnings is that every week we would read the first five pages of 30 novels. And so by the end of, you know, we have a 15-week semester here. By the end of that, you would have 450 novels of which you'd read the first five pages. But not the rest. So, you know, obviously that's a, that's a kind of problem, but, you know, okay. Because I think the point would be, what happens if you say you don't have to read the whole book? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the way that most grad courses work is that you have to read the whole book. And so that restricts what you can do, which is that you can't do this beginnings course, for instance. And I think that – I don't know, but I think I would learn a lot. Um, and I, I, I bet that the students who then approach sort of the future study of, of their novels uh, would never think about beginnings in quite the same way. Now, you know, it may be that like by the 300th beginning, you're like, dude, I've got it. Like, I understand. Like, I, you know, but that would be good to know also, right? I mean, you know, and these are open questions. How many of these do you have to sort of think about in order to really develop some patterns and parameters and structures and ideas about what it means to begin a novel? Right. And if you're putting them all in a relationship like that and taking them out of the relationship that we would ordinarily encounter them, they also cease being beginnings. Right, right, right. right, 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 right. That's awesome. You totally have to teach that course and then report back. Um, I will. Because I yeah. love that. Yeah, well, that's, that's planning for that. I mean, that's fall of 2015, I believe. So that's, hey, that's, on, that's on the docket. Good. <laughs> Great. So, Eric, uh, thank you for letting me take up an inordinate amount of your time. Oh, it's been really fun. For me, too. Is there anything that you want to put on the table or mention that we didn't have a chance to talk about? You know, I actually think that I'd like to ask you a question. So, you know, you've, you've talked about and you've said you know, multiple times that this is useful for historians. And, and I feel like I've, I've heard you say that. And I've, you know, at, at times responded by trying to talk about what I imagine the discipline of history to be. But maybe, you know, can you talk more about sort of the ways in which you think, especially some of this world stuff matters for historians potentially? I mean, in the way that maybe, you know, you don't have to talk about historians in general, you could talk about you. Um, but I, I'd love to hear that. And I think it would give me a, a, a sense that I, I'd be delighted to have. And that is, I want to believe you um, uh, because that would be, I, I would have accidentally written a book that was more useful than I knew. Um, but also, you know, in some sense, I think I would find it easier to believe you and, 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 and it would make me happier if you gave me some specifics uh, and it might help, you know, in turn our listeners. But I'm just going to I'm just going to cop to the sort of purely narcissistic uh, <laughs> desire. Sure. I'll, I'll be super brief and I'll just um, three things that immediately come to mind as things or aspects of what you're doing here that have absolute and immediate relevance to what we do as historians or at least to what I think of as what I am doing as a historian and, and how that fits into the broader field as it's defined in various ways, um, we're concerned with really three, at least there are three things that, um, among other things, 
are absolutely foundational to defining what it is we do as historians. One of them is to think about the relationship between parts and holes, fragments mm-hmm. and, and holes, exclusion and inclusion, and your way of thinking about and defining both what counts as a world and also what, um, what constitutes different units that are comparable is really, really useful um, because, I mean, that's that's a kind of problematic and a kind of move that we're doing all the time, whether we're thinking about, you know, China or science or different modes of – or different um, parcels of time, different kinds of archive. And I use archive very broadly here. Mm-hmm. You know, what uh, – so fragmentariness, parts and holes, and units, mm-hmm. um, I think what you're doing here and the way you're conceptualizing worlds translates into that and is part of that larger rubric. And so I think it's useful in that way to rethink um, how what we're taking for granted as those units and what, as what constitutes a unit and how we put those units into relationships mm-hmm. with each other and also form a vocabulary for description, for describing them. Um, and that pen here. I'm gonna, one sec, I'm going to go uh, turn that off. Stop calling me, whoever you are. Okay. Aha. So that was number one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> number two, um, one of the themes that comes up in the book over and over again is, is we didn't talk about this um, so much explicitly, but the importance of scale. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's also absolutely and very much um, central to what we're doing as, you know, those of us who work on, I'm I'm supposed to teach world history, you know, history of science and medicine more broadly, history of China, um, thinking about the ways that assumptions about scale inform the kind of work that I'm doing and also how um, being more creative about what, how changing scales can create new kinds of units is, uh-huh. is um, I think, really useful. Also, and this is obvious just um, finally, but I don't think this exhausts the possibilities, what you're doing in the, the third section of the book in terms of time and periodization, right. that's probably the most obvious way that this translates into, I mean, the meat and potatoes of, you know, to use a, a bad metaphor of, of what we are working with and, and shaping and crafting and assuming things about as historians is time. Right. Um, and so right. does that help give you more? Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, again, I mean, I wrote this book and I had at various moments some sense that it would be useful outside of my field. But I, I uh, you know, I, I just I, I think that it, you know, the thing I want to insist on, I guess, for all the readers and or, or the listeners and listener land out there is that, um, you know, this is a, this is a, a book that I wrote very much uh, kind of in the spirit of hope and um an extension and and so you know if you want to read it uh, i think the the thing to say would be that that you know it's it's there for you to find things in um rather than for you to sort of um i don't know reproduce or 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 inhabit purely a kind of you know system of my own invention um so, Eric, now that uh, you've asked me a question, I'm going to ask you the final question. And, uh-huh. and that is, now that this is out, and I think this is, um, I, I really do feel like this is a beginning with this book and not uh-huh. at all an end. I think this is going to, and I hope and I hope to be to be part of this, um, spur an ongoing series of, of conversations. I, again, like I've said, not just about literary studies, but now that this is published and you're kind of letting go of it, what's next for you? What are you currently looking at? Well, I just finished a book on academic writing um, that is going to be out in about a year or so, maybe 15 months from Columbia. Um, and that book is really a kind of guide for 
graduate students and faculty in literature because I, you know, I don't know how to write like a historian um, in which I just kind of compiled. Uh, I mean, there's about, there's about, I don't know, a third of it is about psychological advice and kind of developing a theory of, of what it means to write um, and encouraging faculty and, and, and students to think of themselves as writers, that is to think of writing as, as an important part of their career and to take responsibility uh, as writers for what that would mean, um, both about their relation to their own products um, as, as objects that are produced by people who, you know, f- whose functions resemble in, in some respects those of artists, um, that is to say people who are makers of things um, that communicate at multiple registers and including the register of sound and voice, but also the register of, you know, argument and, and evidence and so on. Um, and then, you know, and then, so that's the first part of the book. And the second part of the book is, is, is really practical advice. I mean, sort of looking at, you know, how do, how, how do introductions get structured? Uh, what is, what is a conclusion for, how do you manage, um, you know, hand, how do you handle it when you get to a theorist and you want to introduce a theorist without kind of losing control of the line of your argument? Um, what's, you know, what, what's the difference in footnotes and endnotes and why would you do, want to do one over the other? Uh, how do, you know, I have this little thing on jargon. I have a thing on sort of, you know, structure. What's a book structured like? What's the relation between chapters in a book? Why are they related that way? What are some different ways that people structure their books? Um, how long is a simple thing, but, you know, um, how long is is the introductory material in the average article published PMLA in the last ten years? Um, the answer is the answer is about twenty five percent of the articles taken up by introductory material. Um, things like that that are just you know some of it's normative, which is say what what are people doing, uh, or some of it's rather descriptive, which what are people doing, and then some of it's normative in the sense that I say occasionally like I don't think this works, I think this other thing works, but here are some examples of each and so on. So that's that's that book, and and that was written. You know, partly it's just a compilation of all the advice I'd given graduate students um, and friends over the last 15 years. Um, and then the thing I'm really working on, which really comes out of the world's book, is, is a book that is a, a series of analyses of literary, um, filmic, uh, dramatic, uh, poetic, televisual texts. Uh, or objects from the earliest of which is from 1507 and the, the latest of which is from 2010. Um, so I'm thinking there are going to be about 20 chapters. So it's kind of 20 readings, um, which is a book in which I do this kind of world analysis, but it's a book written by someone who um, knows Eric Hayo's On Literary Worlds very, very well, um, but doesn't necessarily feel the need to quote it much if that makes sense, so that it's a series of analyses in which I actually am trying to do some of the proof um, or the proving, I guess, of the viability of these for certain kind of scholarly work that I didn't do in the world's book because I, th- I felt like there it would, have, it would have ruined the kind of openness. These are, are in, in the sense that these come after and that I claim no special sort of um, relationship to on literary worlds in in the work i think that the fundamental um project of this will be to justify uh my claim that in fact world analysis can tell you things you don't already know about aesthetic objects um you know, and, and that it can do so and, and that, you know, that someone named Eric Hayo has also developed some useful categories that you can just use 
um, when you do this, but that you don't need to quote or talk about a lot or make a big deal of because, in fact, they're kind of out there to be used. And, and you know, maybe, it's, you know, I imagine, I, I can't imagine this won't happen, that as I do this, I'll actually end up modifying and, 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 and suggesting that, in fact, the book is, that, that On Literary Worlds has some limitations and, and that we see this when we try to apply, uh, you know, or when we apply against the wrong word, but when we're thinking about something like, uh, you know, Selma Lagerlof's The Saga of Goster Berling, that we, we actually see that there's... Um, there's a kind of environmental mechanism for generating story activity uh, that needs to be thought about as, as a world variable, but that, you know, that Hayo hadn't thought of yet, mm-hmm. for instance. So that's the, you know, that, and that, that book I think is going to take me a while. So that's, that's the next big project. Well, that sounds fabulous as well. Thank you so much, Eric. It's really been a pleasure and thanks for taking the time. You're very welcome, Carla. Thanks uh, so much for having me uh, on the show. You've been listening to New Books and Literary Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.